So, we've been orientating our practice throughout the day to this sense of uh, embodied presence. And also this morning, I um, gave some attention to these different terms that we might use a lot in Dharma practice. And I tried to distinguish a little with some reference to the Pali terms, the Pali being the language the Buddha spoke, the language of which the original text of these teachings and practices are written in. I tried to discern some uh, specificity of meaning between terms like consciousness and awareness and attention and presence. And in some ways this evening I'd like to just open that up a little more and maybe somewhat ambitiously I certainly don't promise any answers but I'd like to ask the question in some way what is consciousness? And I'd like to do that with reference to an, uh, rather than just a thinking about a kind of embodied exploration looking at the mystery of consciousness, the fact of consciousness, the operations of consciousness from a kind of sitting inside our experience. And as I do so, I'll sometimes make reference to the Pali language. And I do that because maybe you're interested and because some of you are kind of immersed in Buddhist practice and teachings in such a way that um, it's helpful to have those references, right? But if you're not immersed in that way, or you don't find the references um, necessary, absolutely no need to try to remember uh, these foreign-sounding Pali terms. Once or twice I might try to explain them where it's important, but often I'll just, as I say, make the connection. And to recap, maybe for those of you who've come for the evening and who weren't here this morning, um, I, the equivalents I gave for those four terms were vijnana for consciousness, sampajanya for awareness, uh, manisikar for attention, and sati for presence. When I first started, or maybe not first started, but a long time ago, I was struck that the, fact that the Buddha uses two distinct words for consciousness, vijnana and citta. And for a long time I didn't really understand why those terms, and I never heard uh, anybody explain what seemed to be the difference between those terms. And coming to my own sense of it, I've, um, and I'll, I'll unpack them as we go along. Vijnana, I'll call momentary consciousness. And citta, I'll call the field of consciousness. And I'll try to explain what I mean. But first, with, we spoke about embodied attention. Right? This manisikara uh, literally means mind activity. Right? And we spoke about it as the directing, the capacity to direct our attention towards um, various aspects of experience. And also the way that manisikara, mind activity, is pulled. Pulled because of some intensity of what happens, 
And you gave the example of the sudden, right? You don't choose whether your attention goes there, it just goes. And also the way the manisikara, the mind activity, gets pulled by habit, the things we're very used to going to with our attention, going to because of uh, some hope or fantasy, or going to because we think, oh, if I take my attention there and think about that a lot, I'll solve some problem or resolve some worry or just gives me pleasure maybe to go to that memory and replay it, etc., etc. And Buddha has a very interesting prefix when speaking about manisikara. Yoniso and ayoniso. Yoni Usually in yogic traditions, yoni is translated as vagina, but also means the womb. Yoni so means from the yoni, from the womb. This is the kind of recommend, uh, attention that the Buddha recommends. Attention from the womb. Men are feeling left out, but don't worry, hold on. And contrast that with ayoniso, right? which we can translate as disembodied. So often the attention that we're giving to things is a disembodied attention, a disconnected attention. Right? Disconnected from the womb. Very interesting term. This is, the Buddha was a man, right? And yet he's using this term yoni, womb. Well, what's that mean? The womb is in that sense of the deepest place in us. A kind of depth of the belly. A kind of sense we might have. Often we're a little overactive in our head center. But if we actually sense into bodily life, we have this sense, not so much as a place, or certainly not as a biological place, but of the sense of this kind of the center of our gravity, the center of our being, the center of our experience as somehow being deep in our belly. And a lot of the Asian uh, practice traditions uh, refer, whether the hara in Japanese, dantian in Chinese, kat in uh, Arabic, and this sense of the belly center as the center of embodied experience. And also, maybe this is why Buddha chooses this word, womb, a womb, is the cradle of life, the origin of life. We're all womb-born. All, all of our life, all of human life starts in the womb. So I think, I find that just generally kind of evocative. And we notice in our experience, it makes a difference whether our mind activity, right, how we direct our attention, where we direct our attention. If that attention is given in a way that's we, contemporary language, right, rather than saying womb-born, contemporary language, which attention which is grounded, embodied, where we're, um, we're present in the midst of our experience where we're listening, not just to our thoughts, but listening kind of to the whole of our experience. Listening to whatever tension patterns may be present. Listening to what's activated in us. 
listening to the whole field of our experience. So as we look together at um, and explore a little momentary consciousness, vijnana, and the feel, this field of consciousness, citta, please try to listen yoniso. Listening in a way that you're not just listening to my words and agreeing or disagreeing or wondering about, but there's a kind of feedback loop, hopefully, with your own experience. A feedback loop to sitting here being conscious. So, first way of looking at consciousness is in terms of this momentary consciousness. The consciousness that arises in conjunction with an object. Right? And what does object mean? Ob- sense, the objects, all the data that comes to us through our senses. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches. And through the cognitive sense. So that would also include thoughts, images, memories, fantasies, ideas. Right? All the data that comes to experience. Right? It only comes to experience because consciousness arises with the object. If we were to write that as a kind of math formula, it would be consciousness plus object equals experience. Right? That's what we mean when we say experience. Oh, I had an experience. We say, I'm sitting here now, I'm experiencing looking, or I'm experiencing listening, experiencing hearing. What do we mean? We mean, if we just take the sound object, right? Some object is arising, in this case called sound, and consciousness arises to meet it. And that meeting of consciousness and object makes experience. Usually we don't really process our experience by that. We just say, oh, I'm listening to Martin. And that kind of reduces the dynamic, alive, fluid process of experience to a a fixed thing over here called me, who's experiencing a fixed thing over there, the origin of the sound, in this case, Martin. And... uh, some mysterious process where things are zinging around back and forth, and I call that me experiencing. And our understanding of that tends to be filled out by our sort of scientific understanding of whatever we know about sound waves and eardrums and brains. And actually, knowing something about eardrums and sound waves and brains is one way of understanding that. And if you're an ear specialist... That's a helpful way of understanding that, or a brain specialist. But if you're an experience specialist, which is what we're endeavouring to be, at least here, then that kind of mechanical way of understanding doesn't really yield any resolution to the mystery of consciousness. We can see that because brain specialists and neuroscientists and all are very busy trying to understand consciousness and failing spectacularly. And keep looking for consciousness in the brain for some strange reason. Or reducing consciousness to being a property of the brain. But it seems that consciousness is more mysterious, less yielding to a mechanical view than that. 
if there's no object, then there, cannot, there can't be any vijnana, right? And you can't try being conscious of nothing at all. Can't. When the objects fade, the vijnana also fades. We can get a sense of that when we go to sleep. Right? Go to sleep. Sensory apparatus kind of shuts down a little. Close the eyes, so sight fades. We usually go to a quiet room, sound fades. Even if we don't go to a quiet room and we sleep somewhere noisy, still sound fades because the kind of receiving apparatus closes down. Vijnana fades, object fades, nothing left. Then we wake up in the morning and say, oh, where am I? And there's this kind of gap of experience. Actually, deep sleep is still an object in some way. There's still some stimulation. Very often when we wake up, we have some sense of how long we were asleep. Or we say, oh, I slept really well. Or I, I didn't sleep well. It's kind of interesting. Given that we were asleep, and in theory didn't know anything about what was going on, how interesting that we still have some sense of time passing, usually. Sometimes we might sleep particularly deeply. In other words, vijnana and objects really, really drop down and then we, we really don't know. Sometimes that happens very briefly. If we sleep at an unusual time or an unusual place, might take a nap after lunch, we're not expecting to sleep. Just sleep maybe for 10 minutes, but boom. Vijnana goes objects vanish and then we wake up and we don't know where we are. You've had that experience, I'm sure. You lie there for a while. Where is this? Who am I? You don't know anything. It takes a while. It's like oh, the vijnana is trying to come back online. And then, ah, oh, we recognize objects and a familiar sense of the world starts to reassemble itself. So usually that's the process going on, right? Moment by moment. Objects are arising, mostly just haphazardly, seeing things, I'm hearing things, I'm remembering things, I'm thinking of things. Consciousness is arising to meet them momentarily. And out of that, we get a sense of what we call self and a sense of experience. And mostly, we don't question that. Right? Mostly, we're so fascinated by what we're seeing and hearing and thinking about and wanting that we just, we just kind of navigating these objects without giving thought, without giving consideration, without giving exploration. But when we come to an environment like this, we're interested, well, you know, what do I mean when I say me? What do I mean when I say experience? What do I mean when I say consciousness? And here I am, conscious. It's about the only thing that seems to be really stable in my life. Everything else is coming and going. My sensations and sounds and sights and thoughts and feelings are all moving through. And yet I have the sense consistently that I'm here, experiencing it all. So if we want to kind of free up our life, if we want to explore life, if we want to um, understand the nature of experience, of self, of consciousness then we start to become very interested in this process. We turn attention in such a way that we're actually able to recognize that process forming. And as we settle over these days, and as, the, as we develop a greater sensitivity over these days, 
then we get more sensitive to the way, oh, an experience arising is met by consciousness. When we become more sensitive to that, both sides start to stand out more. The nature of objects, right? the play of objects, the fluid appearing and disappearing of objects, and the play of consciousness, momentary recognition, a kind of wondrous, miraculous, mysterious process by which sights and sounds and thoughts are known, recognized, met, made room for. Extraordinary. And as we develop a, a, a deeper sensitivity to that process, maybe a, a profoundly deeper respect for that process, the erstwhile solidity that things seem to have, the solidity of me and the solidity of the world and the solidity of my experience starts to kind of uh, become more fluid, more watery, more ambiguous, more full of possibility actually. And our sense of self may start to become more fluid. We start to take ourselves actually less personally. We're less invested in being this one, this solid one, this fixed one, this certain one. And a great sense of possibility might start to open up. The possibility of how we understand the myriad objects of our experience. The possibility of how we engage with those myriad objects. And then maybe as we walk in the garden outside, and the objects of sun, sky, earth, tree, people appear. We might, of course, find we're according those so-called objects a newfound respect. We might find a newfound intimacy, a newfound uh, love affair even, with the way objects and consciousness are meeting, embracing, forming and unforming. I was in Brazil a few weeks ago teaching there and uh, during a break in the teaching uh, a friend took me uh, out to the jungle and we were walking for, we were hiking there and he gave me something, when we started the walk he gave me something called haper which is some kind of ground up tree bark that one snorts um, in a sort of double-edged straw, one end goes in your mouth, one end goes up your nose, you blow through the mouth and the tree bark goes up your nose. And he explained that the, um, that the tribal peoples in that area used this haper for hunting in the forest. And it has the effect of just sharpening the senses. And so the greens of the jungle just appear a little more vivid. And the edges of uh, things just a little sharper and the aural awareness to sound a little bit clearer and just sense of whatever might be moving in the undergrowth a little bit brighter it's very interesting we get used to a certain familiarity with the world of objects oh yeah jungle 
yeah, green, and then and same world, same process, same sensory. Right? It's not some kind of knockout psychedelic. This thing It's very subtle, but just, just a newfound respect for the interplay of consciousness and experience. Just an interesting just reminder of the malleability of objects. The objects that we're mostly uh, caught up in right, are the, the sort of inner or cognitive objects. So even though there's a lot of seeing and hearing uh, and tasting going on throughout the day, it's the objects that appear as thoughts, memories, impressions, ideas, storylines that tend to get the most traction, that give us the strongest sense of uh, continuity and the reality of who we take ourselves to be. And yet, as we get a certain steadiness, embodied presence, embodied attention, Capacity to be here in a steady enough way to just see a thought in its forming, in its appearance and its disappearance. It arises and is met by consciousness, it expresses itself and vanishes. Like kind of bubbles, waves, flashes, flickers. So it's an opportunity to find a certain spaciousness around the flickering, a certain um, fluidity with the flickering, a certain clarity about the flickering of our experience moment by moment. And so the encouragement throughout the days to be present, embodied, Awake, contactful, interested, and thus we meet experience in this kind of intimate way, immediate way. Then there's this other term for consciousness, chitta. Sometimes chitta is translated as heart-mind because it really encompasses all of what we usually call mental experience and emotional experience. But when we, if we speak about consciousness, our, culturally our main association is with, is with a kind of something mental. And then we might add on the heart part, right, which comes more from the Eastern traditions. We say heart-mind. But even when we say heart-mind, we kind of, now we've got two places we're thinking about, here and here. So I'm not sure those are very helpful terms for citta. Psyche is not a bad term. But even psyche... I don't know about you, but the associations we have with psyche are probably ones that kind of belong a little bit as well with mind or head. The best term I've found, but it's a kind of 
grave heresy in the Buddhist world, the best term I've found for citta is soul. Right? I don't mean, I'm not talking about in, the, in a kind of um, ontological, religious way as a soul, as some eternal entity, right? Your eternal soul. But what, what, I wonder, just notice for yourself, what are the associations, if you can remove them from that kind of eternal soul context? What's soul? Okay, go ahead. Please, yes. Essence, anything else? What's the association with soul? A vibe, as in music. Right, yeah, it's interesting. We say, that's got soul, we say. She's got soul. Oh, interesting. What do we mean about someone else said something? What's inside? Okay. Any others? So, I would, I would, when I'm using uh, soul as a translation for citta, I'm meaning, like I said earlier, the field of consciousness, the f- or field of experience. We could all say, also say. It's, it's generally what we mostly identify with is this field of our experience. It's very hard to define. But we, there's the, this, our citta, our field of consciousness, is very impressionable. It's like this, um, um, well, it's like a field of consciousness, right? It's constantly being affected by what's happening, right? What's being, what's impacting, by the sensory stuff that's impacting, by emotional states that are impacting by different mind states and it's constantly affecting so being affected being impacted and impacting what's around us impacting others thus our our chitta is being acted upon and it's acting we're producing uh, ways that we color that field if we're angry that colors the chitta, right? And chitta gets kind of hot and scratchy. We can actually feel sometimes each other's chitta. The more we become attuned to it, the more obvious we can feel it. And sometimes we can feel what's going on with another person as obviously as we can see another person. And we have sometimes a sense of just of our uh, of our sense of ourselves as a field. We have a sense sometimes where we say, oh, I, can f- I could feel that someone was standing behind me. How interesting. It seems to me that the chitta field, it's, um, it's not really, it's not the same as our physical field. Right. Physical field has very defi- clearly defined boundaries, right? It's, it's human-shaped. Right? It's f- the physical field or body field, we could say. But, and chitta field isn't the same as body field, but nor is it really different from. It's certainly not apart from. Hence the importance of yoniso manisikara. 
Often we split up our experience. Somebody was mentioning yesterday, poor Elder Descartes, and what's called the Cartesian split between body and mind. And whether we agree with that or not, we very easily, we've been kind of educated culturally to believe and to act as if I have a body and I have a mind. We don't know who, th- who this I is, right? Because if I have a body and I have a mind, so who's the I? Right? It can't be the body because I have a body. It can't be the mind because I have a mind. What else is there? Who is this strange character that has a body and has a mind? Hard to say, right? That's why, like we say, consciousness is mysterious. But we can inhabit the field of our experience. Another way of saying that, we can sense our being here. We can feel what it's like to be impacted by experience. We can feel and know directly the touch of sensation, vibration, the impact of emotion, the passage of thoughts, the habitual directions that mind goes in. We get to know these things by inhabiting this chitta field, this field of consciousness. And, as I say, while not the same as body, neither is it separate from. And the most reliable way, maybe even I would actually the only really reliable way to be able to inhabit this field of experience is to, is in that way that Buddha calls yoniso. If we try just to inhabit uh, citta in terms of mental experience, habitu- uh, emotional experience, without kind of being grounded in the realm of sensation, immediate, visceral, physical, then we tend to be just kind of caught up, caught up in all our habitual uh, imaginations, interpretations, projections. It's like all of that stuff it just gets filled up with ideas about things. And so we start off very simple. We tend to think of body as a thing, right? My body, this lump of flesh. But as we attend to physical experience, right, our, uh, the idea says body is a thing. The image is of body as a thing. But the experience is of body as process. Body as a field. Not the field as in field of grass, right? But more field as in energy field, we could say, or like an electromagnetic field. Actually, electromagnetic field is quite a good image. An electromagnetic field is affected by charge. 
Chitta is affected by charge. The charge uh, of the environment impacting us. If someone shouts at at you, there's a lot of charge to the impact that affects the chitta. If somebody sings a love song to you, Oh, that's a different kind of charge. It, achi- it affects the chitta. It affects the field of consciousness. It affects how we feel. It affects how uh, open or closed we feel. How welcoming or defensive we feel. And similarly, uh, the, an electromagnetic field is affected by its own charge. Right? It's stronger or weaker. We're affected by the charge that we're producing. The charge of, as we sit with our experience like we've been doing today, if you're consistently meeting your experience with the charge of kindness, oh, this is what's happening. Oh, let me attend to what's happening. Let me listen to what's happening. Let me care for what's happening then the whole field of consciousness starts to respond to that charge, to radiate that charge, to express that charge. If the charge that we're generating is one of doubt or aggression or uh, resistance, then that also affects colors, the chitta. We look at our experience with um, you know, doubtful or cynical eyes. Oh, I don't know why I'm doing this. It's a waste of time. I don't understand anything. My legs hurt. I don't know why I bothered coming here. Still ages till lunchtime. Huh? Then that's the field of consciousness you're living in, right? So here we are with consciousness that's like this. A field of consciousness that has, for however many decades you've been on this planet, and some would say for even previous lifetimes as well, has been impacted by experience. Sensory experience, emotional experience. Some of those impacts have been intense. Some of those impacts have been painful. Some of those impacts have been beautiful. And this chitta, this field of consciousness that we find ourselves in as the theater of all our experience, it's like the sum total of all those impacts. Mostly, for most people, the impacting of the chitta is just going on unconsciously, just bouncing around. Right? reacting to um, and defending against and being caught up in all the habitual impacts that have, uh, that have formed us from the past. And then because of all that habit energy, carrying on uh, creating and reacting to and defending against and creating similar patterns in the present. Dharma practice is where that stops. Real transformational practice is where we see the possibility and generate the willingness to really be present 
to this field of consciousness, to really be present as this field of consciousness. And as soon as we start to do that, we start to feel the impacts. The heat and tension and density of the various somatized right, impacts of our experience. And the impacts of the habitual directions that we find our mind going in, moment by moment, sitting by sitting, whatever. And we have the opportunity to start to really bear witness to those impacts. Generate a certain kind, gentle, spacious attention to those impacts. Start to see into the nature of our habits of mind. Start to digest or thaw or... um, Purify, we might say, some of the uh, tension patterns that we've stored in our body. Start to give some care and space and attention to some of the emotional backlog of our lives. And in this way, our field of consciousness starts to get clarified starts to become a, a, a freer place to live, a more, much more comfortable place to live, a much more responsive place to live. How are we to respond fully and freely to the mystery of life all around us when the field of our being is so clogged up with habit and unexamined material from our previous life. So we have this practice called meditation, called presence, called Joni Somani Sikara, called the skillful directing of our attention, called meeting consciousness moment by moment. That's how we really start to meet ourselves, to meet life. How we really start to explore what's happening. How we really start to understand the nature of this human being that we are. How we really start to see and then increasingly live the possibility of being here more fluidly of understanding things more fully, of responding to life more freely. And it's in that spirit that our days unfold together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.